This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Joey Garcia, the Sacramento News and Reviews advice columnist and the on-air relationship expert for KTXL 40 TV. She's also the founder of the Belize Writers Conference, where writers vacation with literary agents in her native Belize. Joey, welcome. Thank you so much, Danny. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you. It is always so much fun to have other uh, professional advice columnists on the show because it makes me feel like... um, I'm on some sort of collegiate retreat. (laughs) I love that. Which is very, very fun. And um, I'm also just uh, so excited to talk about these very complicated and different letters. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wish that we could mostly just talk about your new writers conference because that sounds fantastic and exciting it's a great joy for me are you gonna get to go um like check in on any of it soon or like when do you all head down like what's the schedule look like yeah we go in april every every year so it'll be april 25th through the 29th 2020 Ah! Um, but i'm from belize so i go there quite frequently several times a year just to be with family or be with the Caribbean Sea. <laughs> oh, that just sounds yeah. so exciting and so fun. And um, hopefully we will be able to carry some of that joy into uh, the advice that we give today. Um, but I'm excited because I started with, this is like a complex idea, our first letter. It's very layered, theoretical and layered, but also deeply personal. And it kind of involves, I, I think, that sort of question of um, how should I Uh, experience my own desires? Um, Is there a way to ask my desires to conform to certain ethical standards? How do I do that in a way that's not about compulsion? Um, Is it possible to examine certain desires and see them as perhaps being part of a certain context? Uh, And yet, are there other ways in which I have to acknowledge parts of myself? It's, It's tricky. It's complex. I will get us started. The subject is, Am I a homophobe if I find gay sex unattractive? So we're just going to dive right in. Dear Prudence, I am a heterosexual cis woman, and I recently broke up with my longtime boyfriend. I've gotten onto some online dating websites, and over the weekend, my friends came over and we started scrolling through potential dating partners. There was a fair amount of alcohol involved. When we came to a guy whose profile said that he was bi, I said I didn't want to date a bi man. This actually surprised me because I'd never thought about it before, and I wouldn't consider myself homophobic. My comment really hurt a friend of mine, Judy, and she got very angry, claiming that I was homophobic. Another friend was much calmer and started asking about why I didn't want to date a bi man. I said I didn't know, and I came up with some crappy excuses that I think made Judy even angrier. For a while, I've been trying to figure out why, and I've come to the conclusion that I find the idea of a man having sex with a man to be unattractive. I do think love is love, and I wouldn't want to stop two people in a loving relationship from doing whatever they want. But I just don't think I could be with a man who had done those things. I know those two heterosexual female friends have watched gay porn between two men. 
I've never wanted to, even though watching porn with two girls doesn't seem to bother me. Does this mean I'm homophobic? And is there something I can do about it? Wow. Layers, like you said. So many layers, you know, um, and I I noticed that I got really caught um, with the phrase, a man who had done those things. Mm -hmm. It really bothered me. And I and I wanted to say to the letter writer, you know, that's where I see the prejudice that you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. That's prejudice masquerading as preference. You know, because I think rejecting a man because he's had sex with another man, that is homophobic. It's not as if that you you know, the letter writer discovered that the two of them are somehow incompatible. Right. Yeah. And and I think that's the part that you can kind of look at because you say at first, it's just the idea of a man having sex with another man. Yeah. Um, I don't find that appealing. Um, but then that moves to, I couldn't be with a man who had ever done that, which suggests that it carries with it some sort of lifelong, like, gay contamination. Um, and, and again, I, I think it can be hard when you want to be an open and accepting person to come up against something in yourself that is, in fact, limited in that way. And so I, I, I don't want you to say, I'm an awful homophobe. I am the reason it's hard for gay and bisexual men to, like, have a go in it in society. I should, you know, immediately go out and try to date a, a bi man to atone. Like, that's not going to be helpful or useful to you, I think. But I do think it's also okay to say, when I was drunk and looking through, you know, t- Tinder with some friends... I encountered a part of myself that is reflexively disgusted by bisexual men or any men who have ever slept with men. I'm not thrilled about that. Um, I want to, you know, if nothing else, think more carefully about that um, and not bring that um, attitude towards any bisexual man I may meet. That does, again, that's not to say your job is now to date a bi guy so you no, can get over it. But it's actually not fair to that bi man, yeah, right? Yeah, because you would probably not be a great partner for no, him. No, exactly. It's it's like experimenting with someone's emotions, um, which isn't fair. But um, yeah, I think that this is a great opportunity to because this this letter writer has seen this in herself. So it is a great opportunity to kind of dig deep and and clean things out. Um, you know, so maybe she's biphobic, not homophobic. Maybe right. she's biphobic. Because the, the sort of homophobic part would be I wouldn't want two guys to sleep together. But right. the part for you that's hard is what if I was attracted to a guy who had slept with a guy? Yes. And that's that kind of specific but I mean again they can both shade into one another. It's not like you can ever just have one without a little bit of the other. But um, yeah, I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other side of me was like, well, you know, she does get to choose who she wants to be with. And if she doesn't want to be with a bisexual man, she can limit herself accordingly. But I still come back and like I'm hooked and feel like it's a thorn when she says a man who has done those things. That kind of verbiage is powerful. Mm-hmm. It, that's that's where we see the prejudice coming in. And it sounds like he's done something disgusting or committed a crime and when he's right. just had sex. Right, that's or something like, that's going to, like, follow him around for the yeah, rest of his life. Yeah, it's just sex, not anything creepy. So it's a great opportunity to clean out that prejudice that crept in so yeah. that she can truly embrace what she says she believes, which is love is love. Yeah, and and I would, you know, add to that I I worry that the kind of implicit comparison here is the place I have to get to to be truly accepting is to enjoy watching gay porn between men. Oh, right. You don't have to do that at all. No, it's not about that. It's totally not. um, That's not a goal you need to set for yourself. You don't need to think like true acceptance is getting off on two guys hooking up. That's totally different. That's a different kind of desire um, that you don't need to worry about whether or not you share. So I would just say, um, you know, 
I, I would maybe go back to Judy and just say, hey, I'm really sorry. I think in the moment when I realized that I was confronting something homophobic within myself, I got really self-conscious, worried that that made me a bad person and tried to justify it in the moment. Um, and I just made the situation worse. Um, and I'm sorry about that. And I understand why it was upsetting and and, and hurtful. Um I'm going to work on this. I'm going to look at this within myself and I'm going to try to grapple with my own internal prejudices. That sounds brilliant. I I also think that, you know, Judy did the letter writer a service by showing her anger. It doesn't sound like Judy took the anger out on the letter writer, but Mm -hmm. she showed her anger, which was an appropriate response to... Um, to this kind of prejudice showing up in a, in a relationship. Yeah, and, you know, your other friend kind of calmly asking questions was also doing you. Exactly. So both in their way were expressing, like, concern and care for you. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is all really good. And, again, if part of you is a little freaked out, like, now I have to date a bi guy or at least make a big show out of any guy I go out with, it'd be great if you're bi. Please don't feel like that is the work that lies ahead of you. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Both because I think that would make the guys uncomfortable and it wouldn't be truly meant or truly felt. Um, but I think it's always important to respond with curiosity when we feel um, something like disgust or revulsion and to say, you know, where might I have gotten some of this? Um, what are some of the messages that I think I might have absorbed from society at large about women hooking up with women versus men hooking up with men? Can I kind of understand why I see one as sort of, if not interesting, at least neutral, banal, inoffensive, harmless, meaningless, doesn't count? Um, you know, are there any messages that I've ever picked up about like women with women that might contribute to that idea? And um, where might I have gotten the idea that men having sex with men is, you know, deviant, um, contaminating, something to be kept away from me? Um, I, I think if you kind of t- toy with that knot for a little bit, you're going to figure out where those threads come from. They seem obvious to me. Yeah, yeah. In the same way about um, sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Right. It may be ha- maybe her limitation is actually more related to actions, right? Behaviors, mm-hmm. um, sex acts. So I, I think that that's that's yeah. really where I think there's some exp- opportunities for explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Exploration. In, yeah. In between, I don't find it hot if I see two men having sex and I would not know how to be with a man I was otherwise interested in and attracted to if I found out he'd ever hooked up with another guy. Oh, it's weird. There's a big <laughs> Um, there's a there's a wide range in between those two things. So you don't ever need to worry about whether or not you find it attractive. I, I don't really care if you do. I don't think it matters if you do. I don't think what you find attractive is either inherently progressive or otherwise. Um, I think the question is more, how have I um, built up narratives around my desires in order to prop up one thing as um, contaminating and prop up another thing as good? So, again, that's internal work you can do. There's reading you can do. You can journal some of these thoughts. You can share them with possibly a therapist. Um, You can ask your friends for what their advice might be. Um, You can remind yourself that you do not have to start watching a lot of gay porn (laughs) until you become a more, you know, accepting person. Um, And, you know, in the meantime, again, you get to date whoever you want to date. And if you would like to go out with a lot of straight guys— some straight guys have hooked up with guys. Sorry to sorry to say that you might never be a hundred percent sure that you're with a guy who's never even you know checked out another guy's ass. But you can certainly look for men who really like women, and 
you know, I hope you find a nice guy who treats you well. Yeah. I, and stay, I don't know, there's also this whole spiritual level of this for me, which is like carrying somebody's past into the present moment mm-hmm. and making their past more important than who they are to me right now. Yeah. And I think that that is, um, is very unhelpful and unkind in the long run in developing an intimate relationship with someone. Yeah. No, and that, that makes so much sense. And there's so many different ways in which we can do that. And that doesn't mean you have to treat everyone like a blank slate um, or that somebody's uh, past, especially when it comes to their actions or the way they've treated others, can't be relevant. But yes. if you are um, deprioritizing a reality you can experience right now in favor of um, something that didn't affect you and is no longer the case, that's, as you said, a real opportunity to let go of something. So speaking yeah. of space, uh, I think the next letter is all yours. Dear Prudence, I'm a 28-year-old woman who's been going to therapy for about a year now for depression and anxiety and have only begun to recently delve into the emotional, psychological, and sometimes physical abuse I faced growing up. It shed a lot of light on my life, leaving me feeling free and more in control. My parents and I have gotten closer in the last several years, but I've always kept them at arm's length, as we've never discussed the abuse, and they've never thought they were doing anything wrong, or at least never said anything to indicate that. My concern is, now that I'm actively addressing and working through my past abuse, I'm considering taking some space from my family to really honestly confront my feelings and trauma. I've slowly started to do small things, like remove their texts from my inbox, stopped reaching out to them to wish them a good week. I'm just not sure what to say when they inevitably text or call, aside from ignoring them completely. I'm not sure how long I want to take a break from my family and haven't discussed this decision with my therapist yet, but I'd like a possible script for when my parents reach out and or when they ask why I haven't been as present. Can you give any insight to this? So my read here is that There's certainly ways to get and take space. It may be difficult to impossible to get that without somebody else noticing or even having their own feelings about it. But that doesn't mean you can't get it. I just think it might be helpful to um, check in about your own expectations because I definitely don't have a script for a way that can explain this so well that they're like, of course, we get it. We have no follow up questions. We're cool with this. does that did that seem like a little bit like what the letter writer was kind of hoping for? Yeah, I think they want a script, um, some sort of magic words that are going to ensure there's no negative reaction. And I don't think that's possible. But I think it's like residue from having grown up abused. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it's really that that uh, thread where abuse robs us of our autonomy and we end up feeling like we can't have boundaries because we, we weren't allowed them when we were younger. Right. And Especially so- if part of the abuse relied upon no one can call it that. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. So I think that that's that's the issue is that this is another opportunity for um, the the previous letter was about opportunities. This is an opportunity to begin to set boundaries and to say why you're setting them. And I would say to the letter writer, you know, this is this is something that you've been preparing yourself for all to this point, going to therapy and, and starting to unpack things. So setting boundaries will affirm for you that, you know, you deserve to be respected and valued. You deserve to take space if you want space. And um, and you're not responsible for somebody's negative reaction to that. I think what feels probably additionally complex for the letter writer here is that bit about we've actually gotten closer over the last few years. And so 
it seems like at least part of what feels complicated for them now is this thought of now that we actually have a better relationship than we used to is it's paradoxically only now that I feel able to step back and I am maybe newly worried about damaging that closeness if I tell them the truth about what I'm going through. And and I totally understand that um, anxiety. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I would just say, I, I think you have a couple of options here. One is either to be very nonspecific about why you're taking a step back. Um, if, if you want to save that conversation for later, I, I think it might be possible to say something like, hey, you may notice that over the next couple of weeks, I'm a little bit less responsive on text or over the phone. Um, I'm focusing on something right now in therapy that's really hard, and I'm spending a lot of time doing some internal emotional work. Um, So I may be just a little bit less available. Eventually, I'd love to share a little bit more about that with you, but for right now, I I may be a little harder to reach. That's one option. Um, If your parents respond to that with, no, we need to know now, it may at that point be necessary to set a firmer boundary and say, I, I, I can't share this with you yet. That day will come. I do need you to be patient. I'm not going to answer more questions about this right now. I wonder about setting that up, though, and saying, I will tell you later or that day will come. I wonder if that is a promise that is helpful to make with these kinds of parents. Right. Um, because they, they, you know, they have boundary issues, right, where they're already taking advantage. So I'm thinking that that I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest to the letter writer to make that promise, okay. but rather to say everything else you said. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, that you'll the letter writer will get back in touch when she's ready or yeah. he's ready. And until then, you know, please don't call her text. Don't expect me to call her text. Yeah. To be very specific and, yeah. and not worry either. Um, just I'm doing something for myself, and if I have something to say to you later, I will. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that too is the slightly uh, like higher conflict route. I usually like to try to do a low conflict and a high conflict one. Another one is just like um, I'm in therapy right now and I'm talking a lot about my childhood and what hurt me during my childhood and I need some space. Um, So I will not be able to respond to texts or emails for a while. Yeah. And, you know, then you, you do kind of lose the. Um, finesse finesse or yeah then they know at least what what's going on with you and they might be more inclined to say why are you in therapy or what was wrong with your childhood and that might be trickier to navigate for you but it also might feel a little freeing to say here's what it is this is why i'm not picking up yeah yeah this it's it's up to the letter writer right you're right it might be more freeing it might feel intrusive Mm -hmm. and um the worst thing in these situations i think sometimes is to feel like um, I'm under a microscope or mm-hmm. in the spotlight on the hot seat having to answer these questions. Yeah. So it's these are opportunities and you can kind of figure out which which path is the best one. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it's really about reclaiming voice and speaking up and saying what needs to be said and uh, reminding people that um, that you have a, a boundary in place and you need some time and, and you deserve that time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would just say my last thought there is um, I, I'm not sure yet how long I want that break to be. And again, you know, that that you you may not know that until you're kind of in the middle of it. Um, and they may complicate your plans by deciding for you. Like if they overreact or if they get really angry or if they say, well, then we're not going to talk to you. That may be um, 
something you don't have a lot of control over, but it might be helpful to talk with your therapist. You know, okay, here's my worst case scenario, which is like I don't say anything and my parents start haranguing me or I say something and they flip out and they cut me off completely and I feel like they got to set the terms of engagement. What would I want to do then? How could I look out for myself? What's a best case scenario? Um, If I imagine going a year without talking to them, do I feel mostly kind of freedom or do I feel sadness or both? Um, Really uh, spend some time sitting with the possibilities with your therapist Um, because it it can be very hard even with uh, even when you know that you need this to say like I don't know how long I'm going to need a break for they may very well say that's unbearable to us or we object and you'll have to figure out how do I do what I need um, regardless of whether or not they agree with me or like it but um, like negotiation for holidays and things like that but I really love your idea of like this is a rhythm and um, the letter writer's been connected to her family and she may be dis- disconnected for an undetermined time and she can choose whether and when to reconnect or not. Mm-hmm. And I I love that your suggestion of s- looking from the future. You know, how does it feel looking back and deciding where that uh, end date will be? Yep. And I just think it, it makes a lot of sense to me that this is the time that you felt the most able to kind of delve into that past abuse in part because... Um, they have not been actively abusing you. Um, but it's also really okay for you to say, they don't need to agree with this for me to do it. Um, my job right now is not to get my parents to admit that they abused me. My job is to process and talk about my own trauma from the abuse that I suffered and to take what I need. Even if they disagree, I still get to take that space. Absolutely. It's yours. It's yeah. your life. Yeah. So, um, you know, to whatever extent that is a helpful script, I hope you can borrow from it. And I think mostly just to ask yourself, what information am I ready to share with them right now? What information am I not ready to share? How do I make sure I don't promise them something I don't actually think I can give them because I'm nervous that they might make demands of me? And how how would I need to get off the phone or end an email if they started demanding things that I wasn't ready to talk about? Um, and how would I just practice saying something like, I'm not ready to talk about that right now. I'll let you know if that changes. That's that's a really okay thing to say. That's a really important thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. And good luck. I, I think this is important work. And I just, I'm so glad that you're seeing a therapist. And um, I hope you can take all the space that you need. And you also may find, even if, if the closeness has been meaningful, you also may find if you stop talking to them for a while that it feels really good. And I just want you to know that that's okay and you're allowed to feel that way. Yes. So in keeping with kind of like <laughs> complicated, ongoing rifts that are some people want to unrift it um <laughs> the, the the subject of the next letter is semi-estranged father is breaking my heart dear prudence a few years ago i was forced to tell my father that my mother abused us as kids he called me a liar and stopped talking to me eventually we got back into contact because i realized that total estrangement would cause me to lose relationships with other family members on his side and i couldn't handle those losses too He has never addressed this rift with me, and as a result of this, plus his refusal to accept gay family members, have made me unwilling to keep in regular contact with him. Now we talk once every couple of months, and I never give him more than surface-level updates on my life. I know that this is the best I can hope for, and it will not change. The problem is, every single time I see him or talk to him, he guilt trips me about how much he misses me, how much he wishes we talked more, how good it is to hear from me, etc. It breaks my heart every time. No matter how many times it happens, I can't seem to get over it or approach this relationship with indifference, even though that's what it deserves. 
He doesn't understand that this distance is deliberate and consistent on my part. I wish with every fiber of my being that I could trust him enough to talk more regularly, but he's not the person I thought he was, and I have to protect myself. How do I handle these guilt trips? He is entirely incapable of talking about his feelings honestly or listening to others. And after years of emotional and verbal abuse from my mother, he shuts down completely when conversations get hard. Yeah, there's um, some crossover with the last uh, letter. And, you know, what comes to me is I I want this letter writer to see herself as an adult equal to her father. Mm. So it's hard to overcome that childhood conditioning, but continuing to operate under it keeps us small. And when we feel small, it's really difficult to express our feelings directly. So it doesn't matter really that um, the letter writer's father doesn't have, you know, it doesn't matter that the letter writer's father won't talk about his feelings. Um, She can still stand up for herself and she could talk about her feelings and her thoughts. So he's stating his longing for more contact and she's feeling guilty um, because that distance is intentional, right? And she hasn't told him that. Mm-hmm. So it's really guilt more, I think, about the secret. Yeah. And and so if she is more direct in a way that works for her, mm-hmm. then she can alleviate that guilt. And she hasn't done anything wrong, right. you know? And so there's really no reason to feel guilt except for the the paradigm that says, you know, you have to behave this way with your parents. Yeah. Um, so I, I just really, oh, I feel badly yeah. for her. Yeah, and I, I, I get that complexity because it's like, she also says that, you know, um, I, I know that this won't change. I know this is the best that I can hope for. So it kind of feels like um, we're not allowed ever to talk about that ever again. And I would just say, again, you don't have to. If you, if you like run the numbers on this idea and you think, nope, that would result in a huge fallout and an estrangement from other people and I'm not willing to do it, you, you don't have to. But I think um, imagining a way to say, dad, I think you know part of the reason that we don't talk more often is because you denied the abuse that I experienced as a kid. Um, I'm not looking to get into an argument about that with you, but that's why we don't talk very often. Um, And that's going to be the way that things go forward. Yeah, I think that's great. It's very direct. And I think it it would help perhaps to say, you know, when the father says, I want to spend more time or we don't spend enough time to say, you know, let's enjoy the time we have right now. Yeah. Instead of this, because I think older people, there's a tendency for longing and melancholy. And there may be a thread of that as well as just the um, habituated pattern of control. Yeah. Yeah. It could absolutely be. Yeah. Some of that would be totally understandable just as as time passes, you you want to reconnect. And some of it could also have to do with that, like, I'm used to controlling you. Um, so again, I would encourage you to at least consider saying that once again, not with the goal of convincing him or relitigating that conversation, but just to say, just to be clear, this is why we have distance. This distance is important because it keeps us from having this fight. Um, and then, you know, shepherding that conversation to a conclusion, um, if he seems, uh, inclined to relitigate it. Um, and then after that, again, if he tries to bring it up, you can just say, Dad, I would love to just enjoy this conversation. If you can't do that, I'm going to hang up. Um, I, I think one of the ways that it can be helpful to take a little power away from somebody who's launching a guilt trip is you is to just kind of calmly accept their terms. Like, yes, you're right. We don't talk more. Would you like to talk now or would you like to end this conversation? Like, yeah, just real clearly name our two options. 
Um, if you would like to, you know, just make it clear to your dad, like if right now what you want to do is have an argument about why we don't talk more, I'm not available for that conversation. I am available for talking about, you know, what movies we've seen lately, how grandma's doing and how work is. That's what I got for you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's specific. It maintains the relationship. But most importantly, it gives the letter writer, you know, her space, her power, her backbone. Yeah. Yeah. So and I know that you're like, no, he would he would shut down. And again, I'll just say you don't have to do this, but maybe it would be okay to just once name the reality between the two of you and not take responsibility for whether or not he freaks out afterwards. And it's okay if he shuts down. I mean, he gets to have the response he's going to have. Right. Now, all that said, if you, again, run those numbers knowing your dad as as well as you do, if you decide that is not a possibility for me, I would like to offer you uh, another uh, approach, which is just um, when he kind of recites all the things that he misses about you, to just really calmly say, I'm sorry to hear that, Dad. That's it. Like not either a promise that you're going to change things or an admission of, yep, I'm doing the wrong thing or trying to argue with him. Just, oh, that sounds really hard, Dad. I'm sorry to hear that. And then, you know, again, like you had said earlier, but I'd really like to just focus on this conversation right now because we can be together over the phone right now. Let's do that. What did you do today? Did you, you know, see anybody interesting today or you read anything good Um, so that you can hold a limited amount of emotional space for his sadness there? Um, while also not letting it wash over you. Yeah, yeah. Coming back to that place of uh, equality and being an adult in the conversation. Two adults in a room. I like it. But yeah, guilt trips are hard. They're hard and they're um, way too common. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> they often work, which is why lots and lots of people employ them because it's uh, usually a very quick way to get what you want. Yeah, and I think in other situations, perhaps not in this one, but it's a, it's a great opportunity to um, call somebody on that, mm-hmm. you know, especially maybe in the workplace. Yeah. yeah. But in family dynamics are yeah. a whole nother layer. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but that's going to be hard. And and it just, I also hope that you can find other people to talk to about this who are not part of your family who can just help and listen and say that does sound really hard. Yeah. 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 Good right. friends. This next one's all you. Untold unplanned pregnancy. Dear Prudence, almost four years ago, I went through an unplanned pregnancy. I ultimately chose to place my daughter with adoptive parents. I am certain I made the best choice for myself and my daughter, and I have developed a wonderful relationship with her parents. However, I never spoke a word about my daughter to my own family because five years before she was born, I experienced another unplanned pregnancy and also placed my son with adoptive parents. I was in my early 20s at the time, so to make the pregnancy easier, I moved back home. I made a detailed birth and hospital plan that my mother and stepmother both violated. While living at home during my pregnancy with my mother and younger brother in a two-bedroom house, I was forced to sleep on the couch because my mother felt it was unfair to displace my brother from his bedroom. On more than one occasion, she coerced me into signing over to her my checks from the adoption agency, which were intended to pay for groceries and maternity clothes, so she could pay for my brother's legal fees for multiple drug and traffic violations. So it should come as no surprise that when I decided I would have to place a second child for adoption, I chose not to share my pregnancy with my family. I live far enough away that I was able to avoid them for a few months, and they were none the wiser. I believe that eliminating my immature, intrusive, passive-aggressive family members from the adoption process would be easier for me, and I was right for a while. 
Now my daughter is approaching her fourth birthday. I always planned on telling my family about her, but now that I'm facing that reality, I'm not sure how to. My mother in particular will be devastated. She's an extremely codependent person, and she considers motherhood to be the only worthwhile thing she's ever done in her life, even though she's an intelligent and highly skilled registered nurse. And after I gave up my son, we had multiple fights during which she insinuated I must be some kind of soulless deviant to give up motherhood. She has a history of cutting off contact with anyone who upsets her, including her own mother and her sister who was dying of cancer, so I have to accept that she may cut me out of her life. I was estranged from my father until recently, and I don't know how he'll react either. My son knows about his biological sister, and he and his parents occasionally visit with my mom and dad via Skype, and it's not fair to ask him and his parents not to talk about her. I have a complicated relationship with my whole family, especially my parents, but it feels wrong to keep my daughter a secret any longer. How do I talk to them about this and minimize their hurting? Yeah, a good sigh. So I do think a really important thing to keep in mind going into this is um, you cannot minimize their hurting. That is not going to be a useful objective. This is a very, very big bombshell. I, I can certainly understand why you made the choices that you did, but I also think um, there's just no way to tell somebody, by the way, I have a four-year-old child that you don't know about it um, without there being a pretty big emotional response. So I just think you should take minimizing their hurting off the table. This is going to come as a huge shock and they will be upset. Yeah. Yeah. You can't control the outcome of this information once it hits and um, you can't minimize the pain. It's not in her control. Yeah. Um, she is in charge of being direct and honest as much as it serves her to do so. So, yeah. Yeah. So she, I would say to this letter writer, you've kept a secret for a good reason because she was taking care of herself. Mm-hmm. And um, when she chooses to tell it just to stay calm because she's done nothing wrong, it's her life information. Mm-hmm. And so she... She has the right to keep that to herself, to share it widely, um, or anything in between. And her kids have been adopted by other families. Um, so it's, on, on one hand, even though her parents have this participatory relationship, it's really not their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say the one logistic thing that I would say before you tell your parents, uh, because you say that your son and his parents occasionally visit with your parents over Skype. You're right. I would prepare the parents um, who look after your not look after the parents of your son, um, because I think there is a chance that your parents might respond in a very big way, and there is potentially a chance that they will say something upsetting to your son. Um, or try to get information about your daughter's whereabouts from your son's parents. Or from your son, because, yeah. you know, they may wonder why he didn't tell them. Right. Right. So I, I would say, first and foremost, give give those parents a heads up and just say, I'm planning on telling my parents. Um, I, I hope that their reaction is um, one that we can share just as a family. I am slightly concerned that um, in the initial reaction, they may ask intrusive questions. And I want you to know so that you can be prepared to just set some boundaries or answer any questions that um, you feel comfortable answering. I just want you to have a heads up. And they, they may decide to, to split the family, to, to not have the letter writer a part of future family events. And yet, 
Yeah. Yeah. And so she has to be prepared for all that, but it's not the end of the world. You mean, sorry, not have the letter writer at Future Family Months. Do you mean her parents or the parents who are now looking after her son? Her parents, gotcha. not not the, the parents of her son. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I would say because that... Because if her mother is someone who is called, um, what was it, a deviant? I mean, that's... Yeah, boy, like, oh boy. Whoa, that's I get like why very that relationship's extreme. complicated. Yeah, yeah, and painful. Yeah. So um, it's it's just, it's extreme, and she's going to... She just has to prepare herself for the yeah. possibility of an extreme response yeah. and not to take it on, even though that's going to be incredibly hard. So if she's not in therapy now, yeah. she really needs to find it. a good therapist so that she has that support... Um, yeah. Do you think that it's a better idea to potentially communicate this information over email or via a letter? Or do you think that there's something about the particular kind of information that means it should be delivered in person or over the phone? If that's possible, what's your read there? I would start by writing an email and sending it to herself, mm-hmm. you know, writing it and then let it sit for a few days and marinate and notice where there are any, whether, you know, the letter writers incorporated not meaning to, any kind of hooks or um, expectations or anything that doesn't work in her favor and just keep sending it and editing it for a couple of weeks before she actually um, then says it in person, I think, or by phone. Yeah. I think that's best. Yeah. Yeah, because it's tough information. Yeah. Yeah, and I think probably phone would be, uh, to my mind, maybe the best um, uh, compromise because that's hard information to get in the letter. So it would be better not to if you didn't have to. Yeah. But also based on how your mother has responded to other things in the past, I think being in the same room might be um, a lot. So I, I would say I like very much the idea of rehearsing it a while, editing it, um, and then either doing your best to deliver it over the phone or if you decide I just can't sending the the final version of the letter. Yeah, she can actually just read the email. You know, I'm I'm... I'm telling you this because I trust you and I care about a relationship. Mm-hmm. I have a daughter and a son. Yeah. And I think to stress a couple of things, you know, just for, I would say just lead with the information. Like just say, I need to tell you that four years ago I had another child and I gave her up for adoption. Because um, I think that can be a little easier than kind of w- working your way up to, I have to tell you something. Here's why I didn't tell you sooner. I think start with the information and then move on to the information about the information, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the only other thing that I would say is, um, say, the reason that I have not told you sooner is because of how difficult and painful that first pregnancy was. Um, Because this was such a difficult decision for me, while I understand that this may feel surprising and painful, um, I am not available to help you process your feelings about it. If you um, need to mourn or grieve or feel hurt, I understand that and I want to give you that space. I cannot be that person for you. That was one of the hardest decisions I have ever made. It has already been done. I, I cannot undo it. Um, and so if you need to express powerful feelings about this, I hope that you do, whether that be with a therapist, with one another, with your friends. Um, but I need to take a step back from that. So letting them know you will not be available for the immediate aftermath of this and and to say, you know, if later you would like to talk about it, I will be available to answer some questions. I can tell you a little bit about why I chose to do it, um, what's been meaningful about it. Um, I understand that this will feel painful and big, um, but I, 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 I'm, I'm glad that I did it. Um, I would do it again. Maybe I mean, again, you don't have to say any of those things. They don't feel true for you. But um, to really clarify, you know, 
it's not that I'm just telling you this and we'll never talk about it again. But also, if you want to like yell at me for an hour, I will not be available for that because, you know, you can't unring this bell. Yeah. Maybe don't say the phrase, <laughs> you can't unring this bell, but like um, what is done is done. And do you think it would be helpful to uh, set a time to, to talk about it again? Yeah. I, you know, I think maybe just to say, like, do you do you all have a few minutes? I, I think trying to like set up a time to talk over the phone kind of like we were talking about earlier might start to feel a little like well what is this about why don't you just tell us now oh no i meant like in after she delivers the information like uh. well um to give to give the parents a date yeah like um I, i'd like to talk about this with you in about a week yeah i mean so she's retaining the power over yeah. how this is going to go yeah so that if it gets gets rough in that a week later when they talk she can say you know like you just said like yeah okay this is not what i'm really willing to engage with yeah um but when you're ready to talk and have a conversation that is mutually beneficial, I'm I'm really up for that. Yeah. And then to go into that with a really clear idea of what are the lines that if my mother crosses, I will end the conversation. Yes. And so just like, and that's so reasonable. Again, even if she's hurt, shocked, surprised, and in pain, it's still really fine to say, if you call me a soulless deviant, this conversation will be over. Yes. And to stick to that, like you have every right to name your terms. Even if someone's feeling very surprised or hurt, um, it's still okay to say, you can't call me a soulless deviant um, or that I am a bad mother. I did what was best for my kids and they are both thriving. Yeah, and best for myself yeah. given the circumstances. So I would I would make that her mantra so she doesn't end up believing she has to take on her parents, uh, or especially her mother's drama. Yeah, yeah. and just yeah. again, based on how she treated you during your first pregnancy, yeah. if the net result of this is that your mother cuts you off, that might be a good thing. And I don't say that lightly, like, don't worry, it'll just feel fun, because having your mother cut you off is extremely painful, um, even if you know she is an unreasonable and unkind person in a lot of ways. But um, based on the history that you have described, I think some distance from her would be really okay. And um, that would maybe be... Self-care. Yeah, that would maybe be a necessary outcome. If the alternative is, you know, she takes the checks that are meant to go towards maternity clothes and prenatal care towards bailing your brother out for another, like, DUI um, and yelling at you, calling you a soulless deviant, um, I don't know if she's capable of acting lovingly. And that is hard and sad and painful, but um, it may be okay if they cut you out. That may be... A, a gift in disguise. Um, I'm sorry. I, I hope it goes better than you expect. Um, the good news is there's nothing they can do about it. It's over. It's done. And um, that's the. I think that's the best thing to hold on to. Right? Is yeah, just like. And I I love that. Just coming back to my children are thriving. Yeah. I'm thriving. It was the best decision. Just holding that, you know, interiorly and just. Um, making yourself live from it. So when your mother, if she re- if she responds in a venomous way, that you're holding that sensibility inside yourself, that you're a good person, you did the right thing, you do it again, and just standing in that and not tolerating being treated as anything less. Yeah, yeah. So moving from one complicated situation to another, <laughs> the subject of our next letter is complicated origin story. And that is just exactly what we are dealing with here. Uh, I think this one's my turn to read. Um, and it's it's fairly long. It's a little longer than some of our letters usually are. So I hope all our, our listeners will bear with us. Dear Prudence, 
We adopted our son as an infant. Landon is intelligent, kind, and well-adjusted. We got to know his birth mother, Sarah, and in spite of some issues, we liked her very much. The plan was to allow contact through us with the possibility of a meeting when all parties felt comfortable. Unfortunately, but not unexpectedly, after a few years, she stopped reaching out and our letters have all come back returned to sender. As our son gets older, we can only share with him what we know of her since she's no longer in our life. We've kept the information brief and age-appropriate, but there's one aspect of his origin that is looming. Sarah reported that he was the product of a rape. This would be difficult to address no matter what, but it's further complicated by some of the doubts that we have about her story. She claimed that she was violently attacked and that she filed a police report, but didn't provide any information verifying it. She also had an older child with another man who had only agreed to stay with her after she said the pregnancy was the result of a rape. Her details about the story changed constantly. She also had addiction issues that she did not disclose and repeatedly lied to us. At the time, we understood that she had a sickness and was doing the best that she could. Since she made the unimaginably difficult decision to give Landon a better life, I cannot fault her for the things she had to do to get through that situation. However, we're now trying to figure out how we can address this with our son. Until now, we've simply said that we don't know anything about his birth father, which is true. However, there's more to the truth than just that, and we think it needs to be addressed at some point. I am of the firm belief that you always believe the victim, and I feel like a hypocrite because I doubt Sarah's story. I wonder if my doubts might be the result of simply not wanting to believe her, but then I also come back to the lies and misinformation. I worry that telling him I doubt Sarah's story sends a mixed message about the importance of believing victims. I also do not want to saddle him with the burden of believing he is the result of a violent rape when I have serious doubts. I have no control over whether or not Landon will ever be able to meet his birth mother as an adult, nor do I have any idea what story she may ultimately tell him. I do not, however, want the first time he hears about this to come either in preparation for or in response to what his birth mother might say. I know, as is the case for most adopted children, he will need to work through his own history, but I don't know how to give him the tools to do so without hurting him. The difficult truth is that either his birth mother is lying or his birth father is a rapist. Is there a way to address our doubts without sending mixed messages? Or should we respect Sarah's story even if it doesn't always add up? Is there a best option here? Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's such a painful story. And I just, um, I feel for this mom who who's wrestling with these mm -hmm. huge concerns. The thing that comes up for me, though, is stick to the facts. Okay. Stick to the facts, what you know and can prove from mm -hmm. your own um, your own experience. I think that your son's birth mother is no longer in his life. She gave him up for adoption. And you don't know who the son's birth father is is. Yeah. So don't go with anything um, into your son's world with any information that you don't think is true. Yeah. I, I think it's just confusing. And holding on to um, the information about um, the information that his birth mother shared, yeah. you can hold on to that. You don't know if it's true. I don't think it's worth getting this poor kid yeah. uh, freaked out about. Um, he doesn't need to be served doubts or gossip. Yeah. So it's like difficult hearsay. That's all, that's really what's going on, not the difficult truth. It's like the difficult hearsay is that his mother was strung out and possibly may not remember what happened and possibly was raped, which is horrible. Yeah. But it's hearsay until she, this the adoptive mother knows more. And the difficult hearsay is that his father may have been a rapist, but it's hearsay. We don't know yet. I think part of what feels like clearly painful for the letter writer is the fear of, if I don't tell my son about this, that means I don't believe her. 
So either I have to decide whether she is or is not a person who is lying about having been raped. Um, and I, I, I don't think that that's what that means. Um, I think that saying the burden of proof for telling a child who has been adopted that their birth father may have raped their birth mother um, needs to be very high. Mm-hmm. And yes. that does not mean that I um, mentally assign the status of liar to Sarah. Um, that just means that that particular bar needs to be very high. And and I think, letter writer, you're very aware um, that Sarah's suffering is real, that it exists on multiple fronts. Um, I, I think you're able to hold both the idea that believe victims has to do mostly, I think, with not dismissing people out of hand and allowing them the opportunity to tell their story and not going immediately to you must be making this up for attention or gain. Um, it, it does not mean that you have to shut your mind to the possibility that rarely, but sometimes, somebody is in a lot of distress or pain and does falsify a claim that's um, uh, that's not a, a betrayal of victims. And again, you're not even saying that you know that. It's possible that Sarah both has addiction issues and has told lies about other things and has been assaulted or attacked or raped or all three. Absolutely. Uh, you know, y- you can hold those complexities within you. And you also know, I don't know where Sarah is. There is an excellent chance that Landon will not ever get the chance to meet her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if and when he ever does, that would be the time um, to have that conversation. And frankly, you know, if if you know, 15, 20 years from now, he does meet her and she does tell him this is what happened. And he comes back to you and he asks, I think you would have uh, real grounds to say, you know, when we lost touch with her and we had no way of knowing what had happened, um, we did not want to tell you as a little kid that we thought this might be true, but didn't know any details about it. And you can stand by that decision. And, and it would be as difficult and painful as it might be for him to process as an adult, I don't think that would then mean you should have told him as a child. No, you're not withholding information. You're acting in the best interests of your child. And those those are two different things. I think preparing him well with age in, age-appropriate information about his mother and what you know about her and keeping, keeping those memories in his life yeah. are most important right now. Um, but if... If you also raise him so that he is um, accepting of people and loving and open and open-minded, that that when he does, if he does, meet his birth mother at some point, he'll he'll be better prepared for what she might throw his way mm-hmm. and better able to deal with it um, if she ever decides to tell him how he was conceived, if yeah. it was indeed um, through through. Rape. Yeah. So, and I just again, I also want to stress. Oftentimes, trauma um, has a lot of debilitating after effects on people. Um, it is not uncommon for someone to have been traumatized, and and when you compound that with addiction issues, it could both be true that she has lied about details and told the truth about her rape. Yes. And that can feel really complicated to hold all at once because there's a real desire on our part to say, here is what a victim of rape and sexual assault looks like, and anyone who doesn't do or fulfill these things can't be telling the truth and and the truth is actually a lot more painful and complicated so i i would just say for yourself you do not have to say either sarah is a liar who doesn't deserve help or she isn't and she does um you can just say i want good things for sarah i hope wherever she is she's well 
I have a lot of complicated, sometimes conflicting information about her story. I can communicate so much truth to my son about his mother, which is that she loved him. She did something incredibly hard to help provide him with a loving and stable home. She struggled with addiction. And again, that's something you can share age appropriately at later dates. Um, And that sometimes made it really hard for her to be there for other people or to talk about what was happening accurately. And that's part of why, again, you care for her because you know that that was not always a choice that she was making. Sometimes that was something that the addiction was doing in her life. And that not sharing more details with that is is simply parenting, not deciding she is or isn't a liar. So I would also encourage you at this point, maybe find a therapist who specializes in um, both addiction issues and also like trauma and also adoption so that you can kind of have someone to gut check some of your parenting impulses before you say, I got to go talk to a four-year-old about, yes. you know, drug addiction and or rape. Like, I, I think it would be helpful to have an adult yeah, yeah, to share that with. Does that... That makes a lot of sense. And I think I love the idea of going to a therapist with those kind of specializations so that, um, that uh, Landon can grow up in the best possible emotional environment and, um, and, not be burdened with information he's he doesn't need or isn't um, ready for. Yeah, and just again, the question is not, do I believe Sarah's story enough to tell Landon? The question is, do I believe that this information is going to be useful to him right now? Or do I think that I have sufficient evidence to give him more than just a big question? And again, I don't want to put you in the position of saying you should always decide to withhold painful truths from him no, or no. that he should be protected from reality. I just mean when you lack that certainty and it has to do with where he comes from, I think this is a good opportunity to err on the side of um, I can give him so much of the truth without giving him this big, painful Pointful, pointed, <laughs> painful question. Yeah, yeah. I would just uh, and not hold in your head the idea that well, when he's a teenager, I'll tell him. Yeah. Because uh, he'll be old enough. No, tell him only if you have those facts. If yeah. it's if you if you are are sure that it's facts and it would be useful to him in his life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, you know, even without that, he will later probably want to talk about or process or work through his own you know, fears, emotions, whatever comes up for him about the idea of his, you know, his birth parents, the fact that he no longer has any contact with his birth mother, the fact that he doesn't know who his birth father was, he'll still get to process all of that. Um, You're not giving, you're not giving him a lie to cover up for the absence of truth. You're simply saying what you know, which is that I don't know. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's just complicated, and and I'm just sorry. Oh, and I, it I is. Want, I want good things for Sarah. I want good things for Landon. I want good things for you. Um, and I just wish you the best. So this last one, a slightly lighter note, which I'm relieved about. I think it's a little bit sweet. I, I hope we can reassure this person as well as offer them advice. And I think it's your turn to read a letter. The seven-year itch. <laughs> Dear Prudence, I'm a happily married woman. When we met, I felt a wild chemistry with my husband. We fell in love quickly, and over the years, that love has only grown. We have supported each other through advanced degrees, death, and a cross-country move. We trust each other immensely, have great communication skills, and overall respect and support each other. We have regular, mutually satisfying sex, but the rip-each-other's-clothes-off passion has certainly decreased. I assume this was a normal part of being in a long-term relationship. 
Recently, something happened that gives me pause. I have a big, stupid crush on someone that works in my field and my company regularly partners with. I never really experience this kind of attraction to men. Sure, I occasionally notice a man is attractive, but there's no lingering thoughts. I feel so guilty for having sexual thoughts about someone other than my husband. Of course, I would never act on them. I treat this man in a strictly professional manner, and we see each other only at business-related meetings and events. However, when he speaks to me or smiles at me, I feel like a hormone-driven high schooler. Does this crush arising out of nowhere say something about the state of my marriage, which I thought was very healthy? Could it just be a seven-year itch, and is that normal, or am I a terrible person? How should I handle this? Do you think perhaps if my husband and I made an attempt to spice up our love life, this crush would fade away? If so, any tips on how to do that? I found this really charming. (laughs) So cute, yes. And not to minimize your distress, which is real, but... Yeah, crushes don't magically go away just because you get married. No, it's completely normal to have a crush on someone. Yeah, and it does not sound like you're kind of going out of your way to engineer situations where the two of you will be left alone or to try to cross a line. So I just hope whatever guilt you are feeling, when it comes up, you can just say, I am a human being. Alive and juicy. (laughs) Alive and juicy. (laughs) That's it. Thank you for that. That is the the name of this episode now. Um, And it's also true that you are happily married and you love your husband and crushes happen. And they come and they go and they can be fun. And it doesn't sound like this one is like debilitating you or keeping you up at night. It's just sort of like, oh, my goodness, he passed me in the hallway. Why do I feel like I'm 17? Like, just rejoice that you feel 17. That's a wonderful, like, of all those 17-year-old feelings, that's the one that's the most fun to revisit, you know? Yeah, there's an innocence to it that is really fun and playful and that it's an energy that you can tap into and and let that uh, redirect your sex life with your husband. You know, a crush causes what? The big surge in our adrenaline, then which then affects what? Dopamine and boy, the the brain's pleasure centers lit. All the juice centers. <laughs> yes, are we're feeling we are feeling ourselves. So yeah. it's fun, you know, and I, I um I love the way she's kind of putting her toe in the water as she's talking about it. Um, but it's just a sizzle, and you can you can redirect that into your, your own relationship. Yeah, and you will, I think, be a better judge than I would of, um, you know, some partners could kind of hear that and understand the, like, surface-level nature of the crush and say, like, oh, my God, this is kind of fun. Let's talk about some stuff we haven't talked about in a while. Other partners might hear it and feel a little bit crushed. Threatened. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, read the room, certainly. Um, but I, I do think that it could potentially be okay to say like, oh my God, I had a crush today. Um, and it made me think about what it was like when I was 17. And it made me wonder if I'd known you when I was 17, if we would have like, you know, run off with each other. Like you can redirect that energy pretty quickly. Like yeah. I think any kind of like, God, imagine if we'd met in high school, wouldn't we have gone crazy for Like, how would you have asked me out? Like, that's a very quick and easy redirect to like, you know, now you're fan fictioning your own relationship with your partner. Role playing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, if you feel like, ah, I don't know if I could bring up this person specifically, you don't have to. This is not a guilty secret. You have to confess. Um, if instead you just want to say to your partner, like, I love our relationship and I really want to do like a fun, exciting, new, weird thing that we haven't done before. I feel a little self-conscious for asking, how do you feel about that? That's totally fine, too. 
Yeah, I think it's welcome. You know, it's it's just an opportunity to um, explore a different part of yourself and um, and again, be playful, have fun. Yeah, but no, yeah. this does not mean you are secretly in an unhappy, unhealthy marriage. Not You're not a bad person. You know, this sounds like a totally reasonable response to a hot guy who, like, checks off some of your charisma buttons. And um, it means that you are alive and that you have feelings and that it's all good. And you can make plenty of choices that prioritize your partnership with your husband and your love for him and the fact that, you know, it's not just a a chore to be faithful to him, but that you love that part of your relationship and you have no intention of using this crush to kind of springboard an illicit relationship with somebody else. You can hold those two truths in tension with one another. Yeah. They're not in conflict and those feelings are not um, creating any kind of conflict or they don't have to. Yeah. 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 It, It straight up does not mean you don't love the man that you married. Um, And again, if you want to redirect that energy without specifically saying, I saw a hot guy at work today who makes me want to draw doodles all over my notebook, you can simply send your husband some sort of a text message to whatever degree you feel comfortable saying something saucy. It does not have to be extremely saucy if you are not a big saucy texter. But yeah, go nuts. (laughs) Be like, I'm at work and I wish you were here. To rip your clothes off. Fill in the blanks. (laughs) Or whatever. Um, But yeah, you also, again, don't have to. If you're like, nope, things are really great. I don't want to turn this crush into like a way of starting to sext my husband. You don't have to do that either. You're doing fine. You are making good choices. You are feeling normal feelings that are totally compatible with love and fidelity and respect. Yeah. And the rip your clothes off, you know, that comes and goes in a relationship that's a long term relationship. So I think, you know, don't don't use that as a barometer of a of sexual health. Yeah. Yeah, that's just one of those things where sometimes it can feel like, oh, I should try to rip your clothes off to get back to that. And it's like, you don't need to um, force something that's not there. Certainly, again, if you wanted to do something a little outside your comfort zone sexually, like, I'm sure that that would be at least, like, kind of well-received. But don't feel like you have to recapture the we just met feeling. Um, There can be new and different and exciting feelings seven years in. And you sound lovely. You're doing great. Don't feel so guilty. Yeah, good. Just have fun. Yeah, have a blast. Oh, Joey, thank you so much for using the word juicy in such a (laughs) compelling fashion. I'm so, so glad you came on the show today. My pleasure. Me too. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan, and it's just been a delight to be here with you. Well, I hope we get to have you come back soon. And um, in the meantime... Come to Belize. Come to Belize. Seriously. <laughs> yes. You better Belize it. Tw- oh, my God. Twist oh, my sorry. arm. I don't you? Yes. Okay. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to Slate.com slash Dear Prudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to Slate.com slash PrudyPod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.